HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. The great state of Wisconsin is home to the only master cheesemaking program outside of Switzerland. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, where a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liut, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. This July, the USDA published a study that found crop insurance payouts are likely to increase because of increasing climate volatility. There's been a lot of talk recently, including at the UN Climate Summit this past week, about the role and effectiveness of implementing regenerative agriculture to mitigate the effects of climate change. But what does that actually look like in practice, and what would it take for farmers to be able to start utilizing these techniques? And, of course, who would pay for it? Some experts argue that the USDA's crop insurance program is one lever lever that, if modified, could be effective in encouraging farmers to adapt more sustainable practices. Joining the show to unpack this issue is Jessica McKenzie, a freelance journalist who's recently published several articles in the New Food Economy about this very topic, and I'm so pleased it's brought her to the show today. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So excited you could be here and in person. It's always a big treat for me when I get to be face to face. Um, Okay, so question, what made you want to talk about a topic so sexy as crop insurance? Well, I was actually uh, researching a story about soybeans in Kansas, where I'm from, Mm -hmm. Um, and I was talking to a farmer there about how he was going to respond to um, the trade war, uh, falling or at least volatile soybean prices, whether he would just like throw it in and just grow corn or something else and tomatoes or turnips or something and he was like well it it doesn't work that way like I can't just grow whatever I want and part of that reason is crop insurance because um, you can't get insured in Kansas for tomatoes or 
turnips. So really, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's all like sort of determined by region and and what um, has historically been grown there. Okay. So, uh, and then after that, I was. Uh, he mentioned that another farmer had actually um, been rejected from. He had like lost a crop insurance payout after um, the terrible drought in 2012. He had not had a successful uh, crop that year, and he put in for insurance, and they denied him because they said he didn't cancel his cover crop in time. And there were all these really restrictive and very specific rules about when you had to cancel, uh, terminate your cover crops in order to have um, your insurance be viable. And so that was really what like made me aware that crop insurance had all of these um, intentional and unintentional consequences, right. like discouraging cover crops, which is a big part of regenerative agriculture. I think that's a common theme with the kind of any food policy or what are the unintended consequences, because there are always, there are always some. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, okay. So let's, uh, this is, you know, warning for all of our um, guests, a very, very wonky topic, but I think it's so important. Um, and also one that like, I don't think people kind of dive into a lot, which is why I, or they're not brave enough to dive into it, which is why I was so excited to read the articles you've been writing recently. Um, Cause it's really important for anyone who's interested in like food and ag policy to kind of have a good understanding of this program, um, including myself. And I am, have learned a lot just through, uh, you know, reading your stuff. So let's start uh, at the beginning. What piece of legislation authorizes the, um, crop insurance program, how much does it cost? Is it only federal money? So many questions. Like, how do we, just to kind of get a lay of the land of what, what this thing is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, the Federal Crop Insurance Act first went into effect, or it was passed in 1938, and it was a, a consequence or benefit, I guess, of the Dust Bowl, because um, the Dust Bowl had literally left a bunch of farmers high and dry because of no, um, no pun intended. No pun intended. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's really where it, it began. But of course, that was a while ago. And, and there have been several points at which it's been drastically redone or expanded or subsidies have been increased. Um, right now, uh, uh, the best figure I have is that on average, it costs $8 billion a year. Um, so it's, a, it's wow. a very expensive program. It's the largest sort of agricultural subsidy program that the USDA um, administers. Um, and yeah, it's, it, that's all, you know, federal funds. Um, there are some state programs that sort of, um, like in Iowa, there's a state program that chips in a little extra funding to encourage farmers to do cover cropping. But for the most part, it is like a top-down federal program that is then administered by private insurance companies, pre-approved private insurance companies. Okay. And is it, it's authorized, is it in the farm bill? Yeah. So that is currently where changes to the crop insurance program sort of are pushed through is, is every, every time there's a new farm bill, but that wasn't always the case. There was like a big reauthor, like separate reauthorization in 1980, which is when, um, the insurance coverage expanded to a bunch of other crops. They, I mean, they've just continued to expand what it covers and and where it uh, the coverage is applicable. And um, in 1994, it was briefly actually made mandatory, basically. And oh. then, yeah, the the catastrophic catastrophic level of coverage 
was um, fully subsidized, if I understand correctly. So there's, there have just been steps taken to make it, um, to increase the number of participants. And the biggest part of that is chipping in 60% on average of the premium that farmers pay. Okay, so yeah, so let's talk about how it's structured. You said it's um, administered via a private market. Uh, or Well, no, so the the... Federal Crop Insurance Corporation, FCIC, which is administered by the Risk Management Agency, RMA, which is a part of USDA. <laughs> yeah, there's, Yay, lots of, bureaucracy. <laughs> there's lots of bits and pieces. But um, they set all the rules, the rates, um, eligibility, like what, what you can and cannot do. And then it's just administered by private companies. And then they actually do the, the selling. Okay. Um, so then, so then the... Um the farmers go right to those insurance companies. Yeah, they'll they'll deal with them directly, and I I think it it depends on what region you are, which insurance company you sort of get. I don't think you have a lot of options. No. Um, probably not. <laughs> um, and then and then the feds um, supplement or uh, subsidize that at sixty percent. You said on, on average, I think it it's at subsidy rates vary from you know crop to crop, um, but I think sixty percent is the average figure. Um, How much does this cost farmers? I know that's like an impossible question because it varies so widely, but is there like a... I mean, that's really hard just because it depends on how big the farm is, what they're they're insuring, what level they're insuring. Uh, They can choose different um, levels of insurance, so like different percentages of their anticipated income or yield. Okay, so they have like flexibility within the... And how much, um, what percentage of land in the U.S. is covered by this crop insurance program? Uh, It's like like approximately 300 acres, and um, that's at least 80% of all like uh, commodity crops. So it's an enormous, it's enormous percentage. And is it open to all farmers? So... If I'm a dairy farmer, if I, you know, raise cattle or they, tomatoes, you said. They do have livestock uh, coverage, but I'm not as familiar with that. I've mostly focused on sort of um, crops, crop insurance specifically. Okay. But yeah, they do have other insurance programs. <laughs> You're and- like, crops, <laughs> like the name of the program. <laughs> okay, good uh, point. <laughs> but uh, for, for growers who are... Um, growing a variety of vegetables they have something called uh or they have an all farm policy so you can insure yourself for total farm revenue based on prior years as opposed to just a specific crops yeah so if if you're like a vegetable farmer it doesn't really make sense to insure your like two beds of turnips and two beds of tomato i mean obviously they're bigger than that but it doesn't necessarily make sense to get policies for all 50 things you're growing so you can insure at a whole um farm level okay um and is it mostly used though by those growing commodity crops yeah largely yeah Why, why what do other farmers do uh i mean they uh, do what they did before this was ever passed. They sort of just have to manage their own risk. They they can um, hedge their bets. I mean, hopefully, if you're growing like 50 crops and one fails, mm-hmm. the other 49 are going to sort of help you out there. So I think there's just been um, a sort of reliance on things working out. Right. But... Uh, <laughs> Crossing your fingers. <laughs> yes. 
it's super stressful to be a farmer. I mean, yes. crop insurance or not. But um, okay, so I want to hear. I want to talk about um, like a little bit historically, which you started giving yeah. us a historical inter- overview of kind of this program and these types of programming. But um, just do you can you tell us briefly about how the coverage, just to get kind of all of the basics mm-hmm. down, how how it's how is it um, normally determined and calculated? Like if I was a farmer, what is the sort of process? Yeah, okay, so uh, from what I understand, and again, this is so, it varies so much depending on what you're growing, but there's there's two big things. There's um, the actual uh, production yield history, and so that would be um, sort of a four to 10 year average of what your acreage has uh, produced. And okay. from that, that, I mean, an average over a four decade. to 10 years, yeah, yeah that's, that should give you a pretty good idea, if you're growing the same thing there, what right. you would get in the future. And then you can also do that for um, income. So if you've made so much money over the preceding, like, four or 10 years, mm-hmm. four to 10 years, then that should give a pretty good idea of what you can expect to make in the future. And then only if there's some sort of catastrophic event that kills everything in your fields then you should be okay okay so that's sort of how how it's determined and it's by county you said so what is that it's i mean it goes down to county i I think it gets more specific than that down to specific acres i mean they really try to be as uh as specific as possible Okay, but if you are if you have practices or if you do something that is like not in line with others in that geographic region, it sounds like it might be. Yeah, but I have actually understood that if you do start a sort of specialty crop business, um, you do have to sort of figure it out on your own. But after you work up this history, like if you successfully grow something for four years and you document it and you show it, you can work out sort of uh, insurance based on that. That is my understanding. Okay. That's a long process, but, but yeah, it is, yeah, it is time-consuming. You really have to uh, to show that you can grow what you say you're going to grow before they insure before you. They, yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, yes, yes, that does. Okay, all right, I get it. Um, so, historically speaking, were there other programs that provided farm assistance, like? I mean, disaster payments, or it's because it seems like this crop insurance program is just like the only one right now. Uh, well, I don't know if it's the only one, not true, but, but it's yeah, like the largest. Yeah. Yes. So it, it actually <laughs> <You're> like no <"Nope>, wrong. <laughs> it actually did suffer from pretty low participation rates um, in 1938, maybe because subsidy rates weren't at the same level that they are now. Um, and so the government ended up doing uh, uh, several things through the decades. There were um, there was free disaster coverage in the 60s and 70s, and then um, after they expanded the uh, crop insurance program in 1980, but participation was still low. They had to pay out a couple times for truly like catastrophic events through the late 80s and the early 90s, um, which then again made them try to like force everyone to get it in the 90s and mm-hmm. like 94. Um, but they're still paying out disaster funds for specific things now. It's not just like... The crop insurance program was specifically supposed to expand in order to take, um, to make it less expensive. They're like, oh my God, we're spending so much money on disaster relief and we're not getting enough buy-in from farmers. So we'll get all this buy-in from farmers and 
then we won't have to pay out all this disaster money. Well, that hasn't been the case. In my understanding, um, the estimate is that it's been six times more expensive than disaster programs were. Wow. Yeah. So they were wrong. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So, um, and then are there any other, but so, so that program still exists, like emergency funding, disaster. I mean, I think it's still pretty ad hoc, so it depends on the situation uh, situation and which uh like whether the politicians are going to go to bat for um farmers affected by natural disasters in their area okay um and then any other kind of big types of farm subsidies that exist nothing as large as the crop insurance program right no crop insurance is the biggest but uh there's a bunch of other ones i mean in addition to like disaster aid there's also um some conservation programs um they'll pay you a little bit of money to start um, cover crops in some cases. Um, they'll pay you to take land out of use mm-hmm. if it's um, vulnerable land in some cases. Or shouldn't be farmed. Yeah. And um, then, I mean, it depends on what you're like calling a subsidy, but then uh, the government also covers a lot of marketing for United States agricultural products and, and they also do uh, research and development. So there's a lot of ways they support the industry. Okay. Um, all right. So let's um, talk about the kind of farming practices um, that this uh, crop insurance encourages, because this is something that you cover a lot, you know, in your article, in addition to what, a ma- you know, major changes this program would look like and what effects that would have. So what, um, what are those types of farming, you know, that this program does encourage and, and what kind of crops we've talked a little bit about commodity crops, mm. I'm imagining it does not encourage very sustainable practices, but can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is, uh, yeah, just what I've heard from farmers and um, environmental experts, but it does encourage uh, like monocropping, so commodity crops, single commodity crops. Um, In some cases, it can encourage one commodity crop over another, and that can have sort of again, more unintended consequences. Like there's one study that shows uh, in some areas, corn is subsidized at a, at a higher rate than winter wheat. And so that means that um, they grow corn and then they, they harvest it. And then there's nothing on the ground in the winter, which in, like increases soil erosion and water runoff and nutrient runoff. So you can have all these like cascading environmental consequences um, that you wouldn't think just because someone chose to grow corn over wheat, for example. What about the, can you tell me about the actual production history yield exclusion? What does this do and uh, what are the effects of it? Yeah, this is something pretty recent um, in one of the, like an an amendment from a recent farm bill, Um, but it allows farmers in certain parts of the United States, not all of it, but um, in particularly drought prone areas to be able to exclude bad years from the actual production history. So that's the thing where you're taking the average of the pa- the previous four to 10 years in order to determine what your production is. Mm-hmm. And so imagine if during drought years or low water years, you can just be like, those didn't happen. Like, I'm just going to like take those out. And then all of a sudden the estimate for what that land produces goes up correspondingly. And that happens. Uh, I don't, they just, it was a tweak that got pushed through and, and I haven't been able to find a better explanation for why it exists. Mm-hmm. But the consequence is that um, 
particularly drought-prone land is being intensively farmed in a way that uh, it wouldn't otherwise. If they weren't getting this higher estimate and therefore higher payouts in bad years um, when they need to get insurance payout, Mm -hmm. then it just wouldn't make financial sense for them to work this land at all. It would go back to grass or to uh, graze graze animals or wetlands. I I think there's a corresponding one in parts of wetlands, but I know more about the one in and like the it's in the dust bowl area like the environmental working group has said it could cause another dust bowl like this right. this uh exclusion could lead to another dust bowl and that was 2014 that it go into effect yeah, i believe so so what um what have there been changes to the crop insurance program recently at all like was this um program that started in 2014 like on the chopping block in 2018 any any kind of like movement in this area? Uh, the yield exclusion is still in there. Um, I do understand. Uh, while I was reporting the story about um, different ways that crop insurance or RMA or USDA discourages um, cover cropping, mm-hmm. um, I did hear that they have modified the language around that to like. Uh, give producers sort of the benefit of the doubt in terms of when to terminate cover crops. Um, The whole problem with that is if you're growing more than one uh, crop on the land, then you can't expect it to be like, if you're growing wheat and corn on the same land, you can't expect it to be as productive. You can only like grow one crop in a like cycle. Yeah. Okay. And so cover crops get that like people get really confused they're like oh my god like what are we gonna do about this rye like does this count as something that's like taking away from my primary crop it it doesn't but um well let's let's back up because i want to talk about a couple of these practices these regenerative practices because i think these terms get used a lot and like you know i sometimes think like i don't really know what that means totally so when we're talking about a cover crop what is a type of cover crop and like how and when are they planted yeah. Well, actually, first, can we talk about regenerative agriculture? Sort the of? term. Yeah. Yeah, first. absolutely. That, I, I think it's better to start with the bigger term. Definitely. Um, which actually does get really complicated because regenerative agriculture is sort of a suite of practices. It's mm-hmm. not one practice all by itself. Um, and it's like a more holistic approach to farming that prioritizes soil health. Um And two really big and sort of easy to sort of quantify aspects of that do include cover crops and no-till, which I would say are two big things. And then there's also rotational grazing, like incorporating livestock into uh, the land as a way of fertilizing it more Mm -hmm. naturally than applying fertilizer. Okay. Um, So that's what, that's like the suite of services, basically. Um, What does, by the way, why is soil health so important? I mean, like, really? Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, soil health. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, what's the deal with soil? <laughs> Just tell me. <laughs> uh, yeah, soil health is, is really important, and it's determined by the amount of sort of biomass and biodiversity in the soil. Um, so it it does a better job of sequestering carbon mm-hmm. because science. And because science. <laughs> it does a better job of, of holding nutrients. And that's really serious because if nutrients are running off the field, they are going into the waterways and they're causing, you know, algal blooms in the like streams and lakes nearby. And then they're 
going all the way to the Gulf of Mexico and causing um, nutrients like the like, dead zone, like nutrients that nitrogen, are supposed to be there, nitrogen and phosphorus. Yeah, they're definitely supposed to be there, but they're okay. supposed to stay in the ground. Right. They're not supposed to go into the waterways because they can. They're messing up the the fine balance of ecosystem yeah yeah okay so soil is really important to yeah. retain those yes. nutrients yes yeah and how cover crops uh come in is that the idea is that they're keeping you're keeping something alive in the soil like the whole time um and that's all i mean it also goes with no-till so uh when you till uh land you're ripping up all of the soil and you're mixing it all up and that's to reduce weeds which are bad and they 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 decrease your yields and they pull water away from your uh crops but it it also just disturbs that really fine uh balance like the soil's kind of a living thing definitely a living ecosystem and so to like rip it all up and then put it back on the ground um uh decreases that and both both leaving soil in place, so no-till, and growing cover crops, which keeps roots in the ground year-round Mm because you're alternating cover crops with your regular crops, um, that all contributes to a a richer, uh, more biodiverse soil. So this is maybe a little bit embarrassing, but like the whole no-till, I mean, whenever whenever I plant something in Mm. my garden, you kind of have to dig, turn the soil, mm, you know, mm. and dig a little bit and then put the seeds in and yeah. then cover it. So is this, is that not the same with like larger scale agriculture? Like how do they actually plant the seeds if they're not tilling the soil? Okay. From what I understand, the planters I've seen, uh, I don't actually know this really well, but I, they've got machines that they can just stick them in there. They don't actually need to turn everything up. That's not for, for planting. I mean, you can just insert the seeds okay so you don't have to go through my gardening process <laughs> well i think i mean that's on a really small scale tillage right, is like yeah. ripping up like not just like the top inch it definitely goes beyond that like tillage goes uh, like a foot into the ground it's it's right. disturbing more soil than probably you are in your <laughs> my in your backyard garden, garden? yeah I, that's, I that's, that's my true. guess <laughs> yeah it's probably a good guess um so then with uh cover crops they just die out or i mean are they ripped up like okay, what so yeah, so yeah they they do have to be terminated and that's a sad word it is sad it is sad um and this is where people get um like weighing the benefits of regenerative ag versus uh organic because regenerative agriculture is not the same in a lot of cases as organic there's a lot of overlap in ideology but um they're they're not the same and so yeah mm-hmm. you do have to put down an herbicide and kill the cover crop for in if you in regenerative agriculture yeah okay and it's a synthetic you know herbicide okay all right that's a bummer yeah that is yeah that is something that um but it's happening i'm not sure it's the only only way i think i think it is pot but yeah probably for you do have to terminate your cover crops to get insurance so so that is that's how that happens when you have and then in, in ag- like an organic, because I'm imagining that organic farms also use some regenerative practices. Like Definitely. they do use like cover crops, right? Definitely some, but I, I do know from this one data point, my my own CSA says they can't they can't no till. They just can't. They haven't figured out um, how to get rid of weeds without tillage. So I think you do. Oh, okay. there, yeah, there definitely is. I mean. And he, 
he wrote in his email to us that he, w- he would love to do this, but they haven't quite figured it out. And right. that's, something, that's something people are still working on. Right, okay. Okay. So, so that all um, makes sense. So these are some of the practices. Thank you for laying that out in terms of, because like in my mind, I'm like, let's I just need some clarification about what, what these terms mean and what they actually look like in practice. Yeah. Um, what are the, are there, what are the percentage like of farmers mm-hmm. um, who have kind of adapted conservation practices, you know, like just looking broadly in the, in the country, like have there been any kind of surveys that the USDA has done? That's like, all right, 80% of farmers have adopted like one or three of yeah. these practices. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No. <laughs> okay. So again, so it's really like you can't just ask uh, how many. I mean, it, it does come down to following discrete things. Um, so you can't ask how many farmers have adopted regenerative agriculture because that's not really something that's being or certain practices. Pulled. Yeah. But you can look at, at certain practices, and so um, the one I do have figures for is cover crops, which um, my understanding is that there are cover crops on 15.6 million acres in the United States. Um, which I understand is a, a 50% increase over five years, which is great. Like that yeah. is huge. This like there really does seem to be more activity, but that is 15.6 million acres of something like 350 million acres right. of available cropland. So it's it's a drop in the bucket. It's not um, it's not quite there yet. Right. Okay. So room for improvement. Definitely. What um. What are what would it basically take? Like, are there some conservation programs now that encourage these types of practices? I'm you you, you said that there are certain subsidies currently in place. Yeah, there are a few. Um, so yeah, there's one called the Environmental Quality Incentive Program, and that does uh, help defray the cost of certain environmental practices, including cover crops. Um, but it is underfunded, and it's sort of it's they put in an application for the thing you want to do and um then your application's ranked and then only a few people get it so like it's not even funding available to everyone who could conceivably want to do this which is really unfortunate and yeah. they no they did not eliminate the program altogether in the most recent farm bill but it did not get significantly more funding as many people want um and then there's another program called the Conservation Stewardship Program, which has similar similar aims. Um, although I think it's it's handled, it's, mo- it's managed a bit differently. Okay, there are some, but they're underfunded yeah. and maybe underutilized. Yeah. Um, so what what could be done though um, for these farmers who like how does the crop insurance program kind of enter into this conversation? Like how can we encourage farmers to um, adopt some of these practices right. and does that kind of, where does that come up against the insurance program? Like where right. does the insurance program, um, not incentivize? Yeah. So the thing I hear from farmers and people working on this issue over and over again is why isn't there a good farmer discount? And it really, they compare it to car insurance, like people, get car insurance and if they're a good driver they don't pay as much as the person who's totaled three cars in the past two years they they just get a lower rate and that is what uh farmers particularly those uh doing cover crops and no-till want because what they've found is not necessarily that doing these practices guarantees 
an increase in yields every year, but they have found that it stabilizes years through like dry ones and wet ones. So they are essentially less risky farmers to insure mm-hmm. than um, the neighbor who's like intensively farming as hard as they can. They rip up all the soil and they they buy the fancy seeds and they, they cover it in pesticides and fertilizers and they just try to like get the highest yields. And sometimes they do. Like sometimes they have a really good year and they have the highest yields, but in bad years, they don't have the soil health to retain water, to retain nutrients, and and their crops are more likely to fail as a result of that. And then also have all the all yeah soil erosion, nutrient runoff, like degrading water quality, environment. Yeah, yeah it, it's just like yeah, it waterfalls from there. Okay, all right. Well, we're gonna take a really quick break to hear a word from our sponsors, but stay tuned for more. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that 90% of Wisconsin's milk is made into cheese? And this is not just any milk. When Swiss, German, and Italian cheesemakers first settled into Wisconsin, they chose their new home because of the special terroir of the region. Its soil and water are nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin produces 25% of all cheeses made in the U.S., and Wisconsin cheeses have won more awards than any other state or country in the world. How do they do it? Wisconsin cheesemakers combine their heritage and tradition with nonstop innovation. They were the first state to establish cheese-grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. Wisconsin is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of these impeccably high standards mean Wisconsin produces more than 48% of the nation's specialty cheese. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Allison Kane, and I'm the host of In the Sauce here on HRN. Now that I'm expanding my cooking school to a sauce line in grocery stores, I need all the help I can get. And I want to help other entrepreneurs build their brands too. You can find In the Sauce wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Jessica McKinsey about regenerative agriculture, crop insurance, and how we can um, encourage farmers to adopt more sustainable practices and the program and how the program um, decentivizes yeah. them from doing so. One of the things that um, I want to I wanted to ask you about, which I found was so interesting, is that um, you had written that some of the problems that conservative think tanks identify are issues with the farm subsidies, mm-hmm. including crop ins- the crop insurance program. They're the same ones that are likely to be championed by progressive organizations. So I am super curious to know where the alignment between like the environmental working groups of the world right. are with like the Cato institutes of the world. Yeah, it it that came as a shock to me. Um, I mean, it largely does come down to numbers. They want to be spending less money. But some of the reasons that they give that like the current situation is bad is is that um, uh, the benefits of the crop insurance program sort of all uh, coalesce around uh, wealthier and bigger farmers. So there's no caps to how much you can get from the insurance program and different subsidies. So 
if you have a lot of land that you're insuring, the benefits just like sort of all go to you and there's not sort of like a sliding scale of any kind. So smaller operators um, don't benefit as much. Um, so it, it just sort of creates a, a system where um, wealth is being further concentrated among the already wealthy. So that I think is an interesting thing. And then they also cite the, the environmental harms is a big part. The conservative um, think tanks are worried about that? Yes, I mean, they at this point they might just be mustering all of the possible, uh, <laughs> all all the reasons that one shouldn't have crop insurance because they're like bad really big government. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, they do list environmental problems as as an issue. So yeah, that they are concerned about that. And then they also point out how many non-farmers uh, benefit from this. So there's a whole bunch of people in New York and Washington DC, like, you know, agricultural powerhouses that are benefiting. Um, but how, how do they benefit? I mean, they're receiving insurance payouts. Like they're, they're not the growers themselves, but for some reason, whether they're like the landowners, like enormous proportion of farmland in the United States is actually owned by someone who doesn't farm it. Yeah. So it's rented. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so that, so they're benefiting. Um, how does it just, sorry. So you, the idea that you have more land, you can insure more, you can make more money because. Well, I mean, because there aren't limits on how much you can get from the federal government. So one might think if, if you've had a bad year and you, you like, it's, I mean, the difference between getting $200 if you're a small farmer and like getting, you know. $200,000 $200,000 is, is huge. And there's, there's no limits. There's nothing that's going to prevent you from getting a million or 2 million. Is that because of the, um, program that we mentioned previously that went into, uh, effect in 2014 that basically allows people to inflate the, their yields? I mean, as far as I know it, it, this has always been the case. They just haven't instituted caps, which might make sense. Like you, like a lot of big producers, they should be big enough to manage their own risk in, in ways. They don't need to be subsidized by the taxpayer. Mm-hmm. Um, like, so the biggest operators are just getting huge benefits that they don't really need. Right. But that they're right now entitled to. Where smaller farmers who might need it aren't. I mean, they're able getting to. this the same amount, but for them, it just it means less. It go. It doesn't go. It's not as much money. That's not as like meaningful on a smaller scale. So, what are these? Um, you know, what are some of the like solutions that are proposed that I would say that both like these conservative think tanks and you know the more progressive like environmental organizations mm. are pushing for? I mean, the conservative think tanks are really the only people who are like full on get rid of it. They, I mean, they want it to go to a full private market. Now, it, it, the environmental working group has not gone so far, but they are advocating reforms of programs like eliminating the actual yield production exclusion. Which is the program that I yeah, forgot to mention. Yeah, that yeah, was, yeah. That's the one. That's the 2014 <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. The one that they say could create a, another Dust Bowl. They would like that not to be the case. Um, uh, but there are efforts uh, in at the state level um, in order to just encourage cover crops. So these are more sort of, they're working at the margins. They're, they're not, um, they're sort of giving people a discount on crop insurance. They're giving them a little extra money and it's not enough to make up for the full cost of crop insurance. I mean, of cover crops, for example, Mm -hmm. that like one should note that it, it can be pricey. You have to buy a different seed and you have to put it in the ground. So it's not, this isn't necessarily free or, or cheap, but the benefits 
are supposed to outweigh that cost. And state-level incentive programs can help do that. For example, in Maryland, they, um, they have grants to cover uh, the cost of putting in uh, seed that include seed, uh, the manpower and time spent like planting the cover crop, and mm-hmm. they put a lot of money behind it because they have serious water problems in that area. So they have more than $22 million a year going to helping farmers put in cover crops every year. And more than 50% of the acres that are available and eligible for this cover crop program are planted to cover crops. 50% is huge. Like, yeah. 50%, like, if that were the case for all all 300 it's way more than 15 million yes 350 million yes acres, it's it's it would be 150 million acres would be planted to that and then we might actually be making some progress on um improving water quality downstream right, right. like there, there are a whole bunch of things and was that a very and important? also climate change and yeah. sequestering oh, yeah, carbon <laughs> like i don't know there's a, there's a bunch of like other benefits that are but that with, are was the kind of water quality runoff was that a big impetus for Maryland to want to... Yes. I mean, that it's through an environmental protection program where they're like, yeah, we've got to clean up our, our water. Um, so and so they are basically in subsidizing... The in yeah. the Chesapeake Bay. So yeah. they are subsidizing farmers to plant yeah. cover crops. Yeah. But they're... I mean, these farmers are Every still... Every year. And it doesn't matter. So that, that's the thing with uh, federal programs is that it's helping farmers start. And so I've heard anecdotally from farmers that that farmers will take the money mm-hmm. and they'll do the programs. They'll like check off the boxes because the government's just giving them the money. And then after that, they'll stop. Okay. Um, so that they haven't, they haven't been converted. And then once the money dries up, then they don't continue doing the practice. And so the, the thought is that, um, you know, if you totally all get rid of this crop insurance program altogether, more farmers will have to, will sort of be forced to yeah, they, implement I mean, some of these changes. Yeah, doing anything that can sort of stabilize your yields year to year is a sort of practice, like it's a it's a self-insuring practice. And that's what I heard from a lot of farmers who are practicing regenerative agriculture is that they're doing their best to self-insure and to to stabilize yields and profits and right, which is what they what they what they yeah. want. What would happen if um, if fewer farmers participate in the crop insurance program altogether? That I'm I, I'm not quite sure, but the the thing is, it's subsidized. I mean, sixty percent to such a large degree that it's not like it's it's entirely reliant on these farmers participating for funds to survive. Like there's right. like that. It it's not like there would be like a cascading effect where they couldn't. They would just. I think they would just have to find the money. I so really know. and then like for farmers though, what would the immediate effects be for them? Like how quickly can some of these uh, practices be implemented. Well, to be fair, no, nobody I, I spoke to for the story about getting rid of crop insurance wants to leave farmers high and dry. Whether that's um, it, it, they would want disaster payments to still exist. They would want right. farmers to still get help when they really needed it. And most people want this phased out. Like either subsidies would be cut back. Like the sort of the. Um, the amount that farmers paid would be steadily increased mm-hmm. and then that could be like a transitional period to it being like a totally private market but a private market would spring up again i mean that would just uh happen uh hail protection is already something covered by private markets and not the federal government for, okay for some reason hail is handled differently from other disasters like flooding or drought and so it's it's definitely 
possible that there would just be other ways of doing it. So we would it would kind of move more towards like ad hoc relief mm-hmm. um, versus one sort Which of again, they're already doing now. So they yeah. are already spinning in both of these ways. The question is whether the taxpayer funds going to crop insurance. I mean, the conclusion of my story is is that it's largely discouraging people from adapting to climate change. Right. Like they're, they're not doing these practices that could um, help them do better in, in uh, varying climates. Um, and that's, that's not where our taxpayer money should probably be going right now, is to discouraging adaptation. It should, and yeah, it comes down to like the stick or the carrot, I think. I think um, removing crop insurance totally would be like a pretty big stick. Um, but the yeah. carrot, like funding at the level that the federal government is currently doing for only new producers and only so much isn't really working either. Right. Um, so, what is it going to take for more widespread adoption? Um, Where is that happy medium? Like, from a policy perspective, what does that look like? Yeah, well, I mean, I think Maryland's modeling it. Um, and in that case, it really comes down to. Uh, political will, but there is a uh, sort of little-known um, practice or policy quirk in mm-hmm. the crop insurance uh, program that allows for private companies to develop crop insurance products. So uh, it's been used by um, seed technology companies to to sort of get uh, GMO seeds uh, a lower uh, insurance rate because they they've protected them against you know fungus or something. I can't, I can't remember what specific seed technology it was. And in this case, there is a group of people backed by the Walmart Foundation, actually, because mm-hmm. um, this is a really expensive process and they need lots and lots of money. And they are, are figuring out a way to uh, demonstrate uh, that there's a need for uh, conservation-based discounts for crop insurance, and that's what they're working on. But that's a really long, lengthy process. So they're going through all the policy hoops um, but their ultimate goal is to get a nationwide discount for people using practices like cover crops or no-till. Um, and I think, I mean, money talks. So if if that makes sense for a farmer's bottom line, I think it's quite likely to increase the adoption yeah. across the country. Beyond just the initial mm. um, The importance funding. is, yeah. Yeah, I think the, the difference between only getting giving people money to start doing it and then having sustained funding for a good farmer discount. Like that's what, that's what people want. That's what they're like asking for. Um, and that's what, um, this, uh, task force is trying to create. So, and how far along are they? Do they just, they are, there's so many, they got the first initial thing approved and then, I don't know. They signed a non-disclosure agreement, so they're actually quite cagey with me yeah. about where they are. Um, yeah, I'm not surprised. But. Yeah, I, well, I mean, it's yeah, it's an NDA with uh, RMA, so and the FCIC. So, so many acronyms. <laughs> so many. So acronyms. many acronyms. What? Um, we're gonna have to wrap up in a minute. But what if there's kind of like one big takeaway that you want our listeners to, um, you know, that you want to be able to have our listeners mm-hmm. take away. Yeah. What do you think about this, like, you know, this whole uh, area? What do you think it would be? Oh, God, I don't know. I mean, it's really tricky because this is a bit of policy that is incredibly far removed from most consumers. This mm-hmm. is something that is 
uh, like the farm bill is this huge behemoth and all the little like bits of that are, are very far from uh, uh, everyday anything, yeah, anything, yeah. anything we can do to, to impact them. But yeah, support conservation programs, support uh, they're, they're working on marketing or brands or labeling of regenerative agriculture. So if that comes to fruition, I mean, all labels should be taken with a grain of salt, but, so, yeah, but you can, yeah, there <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of labels, labels but. but that, that is, I mean, that is something. Yeah. And do you see like the role, I mean, there was a recent announcement, um, this week led by Danone about like a group of, you know, big CPGs, food mm. companies and beauty brands, um, working together to kind of improve the sustainability of their supply chain. And it seems to me like there is like the private sector, like you just talked about a mm. Walmart pilot is, is really like stepping well, up. Walmart to foundation. Of, they're, Walmart foundation. Yeah. yeah. They're, they do a lot with water. Stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, but you know, like same, yeah, yeah, yeah. Same, same, same idea. Very similar, yeah. <laughs> Stepping in to kind of um, help move this uh, issue in the right direction, which mm. is runs counter to what's currently happening at the federal level from mm. a policy perspective. Mm -hmm. But do you think that we're going to continue to kind of see the private market, the private sector drive these changes through in the next few years? I really don't know. I'm sure they'll they'll drive sort of a larger awareness about it, mm -hmm. but um, I'm not actually sure how much that will impact farmers. I mean, from what I know, they, they sometimes listen to other farmers, but they sort of have to be interested in this already because um, there seems to be a really, really sharp line between uh, the folks doing it the old way and mm -hmm. intensively farming and commodity crops only and no covers and lots of till uh, and and the new way and there there's um there's some pretty stark ideological divides between them so I I don't quite I don't quite know who who or how uh, that will be overcome interesting okay where can more um, where can our listeners go to read more of your work will you continue covering this topic uh, yeah yeah Definitely. Um, I All of my work can be found on my website, jessicastarmckenzie.com. All right. And then any teasers for, for like other things in development, other projects, other stories? Yeah, I'm, I'm going deep into uh, dairies right now. Amazing. Yeah. I love I'm, I'm, I'm visiting a couple this week, so I'm, I'm really excited. And still with a focus on um, environmental uh, impacts of dairies. Okay. So. Well, we will definitely have you back on to yeah. talk about that. That'd be great. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Uh, Eating Matters is produced with help from Julia De Devon, and our show engineer is Jeet Paul. Uh, show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.